Today on the podcast, my guest is Paul at Bloom. And if you see Paul's last name, I'm not going to try and pronounce it because I'll just end up butchering it. But the reason I asked Paul to be my guest, he is the CEO of Bloom, also known as Bloom.io. And what I think is so interesting about Paul is he is on the front lines with so many creative professionals that are running businesses. And many of these are small and startup businesses. So I said, Paul, I wanna have you on the podcast because I want you to share what you know. So we don't talk about Bloom or his product hardly at all. We just get into these principles that he calls the startup principles of a creative business. So this is not the principles for launching a Silicon Valley startup, right? We've all heard those stories of how these unicorns become billion dollar concerns, right? In their first five or 10 years. This is a conversation about what does it take for you to move from being perhaps a staffer to being a freelancer to, you know, I wanna open up a studio, a production company, some sort of a creative firm that operates under a brand, meaning you have a banner, you operate under a name, and now you're conducting business and you have clients. So what are the principles that lead to success? And Paul has a bunch of them and we go through them one by one by one. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation between me and Paul at Bloom. You know, back in the day when Mozart decided he wanted to write music or Beethoven or, you know, musicians or, you know, artists of, you know, 17th, 18th century or even before, they had this model called patronage where you would find some very rich, you know, patron who would literally give you housing and money and you would create music for his, you know, courts where he would entertain or she would entertain their guests and you would be kind of the resident artist. And that's where a lot of the great art came from. That model doesn't really exist anymore as it did back then. Um, so, so obviously you need to make a living and have a roof over your head and have food. So there has to be a, some, some kind of a foundation to do the art that you want to do and to self-express. And I mean a financial foundation. And anybody who's setting off on that path has to figure out how do I create this system that's going to feed me, that where I can take my artistic skills and passions and apply them in a way where somebody can make more money doing what they're doing by applying my creativity without, you know, like owning me as an employee, if you will. Right. So that I have the freedom to say no to whatever client I want. And then and then setting up that initial framework is is really it's not easy. There's there's certainly like an initial business acumen that you just have to acquire. There's just no way around it. One way around it is, and this is something that I talk to sometimes to agencies and freelancers, is um, considering an option of 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 having like a co-partner or co-founder. Um, somebody you do business with because chances are there will be a skill set that you will just struggle to acquire and that skill set or lack of it will hold you back from having the lifestyle and pursuing the dreams that you want to have for yourself and where maybe partnering with somebody who has that strength you can complement each other and, and work together towards you know the future you want to move towards 
again, co-founder relationships are tricky. They have their own downsides, but I think, you know, that is one option. Yeah. I'm thinking of, there's a formula that, uh, arose maybe starting 15 years ago, especially in the motion industry where a creative director would partner with an executive producer. And if you think about it, it's like, okay, that's the creative genius. And then that's the business and sales and operations mm-hmm. mind. And that mm-hmm. pairing, it, it, it became sort of a model for, oh, if you want to start a studio, that's, that's a great way to start. And I think that's a bit of what you yeah. talked about. Now, of course, I would also uh, forbid anyone from doing a 50-50 partnership because that's usually a recipe for, for failure. But um, they, they can work in certain cases, mm-hmm. but it, is, um, it can be more challenging. Well, there was a, there was a list mm-hmm. that you shared with me, and that idea of considering having a co-founder was one of the things on that list. But tell me, what's the genesis of this list? Because when you shared it with me, I said, oh, that's cool. Because you said, here are some startup principles, but by startup principles, what do you mean? What's this, what's this list about that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through? Yeah. So, so when, when somebody says startup, I mean, it's a, it's a term that emerged mostly in the tech industry and it relates to uh, companies that can be potentially venture backed and that can scale very fast and become quote unquote unicorns, which is a billion dollar you know company. So that's, that's generally what, when they say startup, like, can you create something that can go very big, very fast? And, and in order to do startups, and I've been, you know, in this world for some time, like there's, there's principles that you have to learn of how this world works. And I, you know, as we were, as we're creating a company for, um, you know, freelancers, I've just observed that a lot of the principles overlap and are apply, apply to freelancers and agencies just exactly in the same way. Um, so yeah. Um, would you like to dive into those? We can, we can. Yeah. I guess here's what I hear you saying is that in this context, we're really referring to a creative who wakes up one day and says, I'm going to do my own startup, not to scale and become a unicorn, but I, to maybe, maybe grow enough and be a small agency somewhere in, in the future. Mm-hmm. So we're almost talking about that sort of a, sort of an arc. Mm-hmm. So let mm-hmm. me just read them off first because I thought they were really good. We can, we can then go back and sort of unpack them. So the principles that you sent were this, or were these. One, learn lessons fast. Two, divide marketing into specific skill sets. Three, niche until it hurts. <laughs> Number four, solve your GTM acquisition channel. I have no idea what that refers to, so that'll be a good one. Um, go to market. Go, go to, market. to market. Okay, cool. <laughs> Number five, mm-hmm. adjust strategies based on scale. Okay. Number six, focus on process and efficiency. Number seven, productize your service. And then number eight is the one that you you already addressed about considering having a co-founder. It's funny, Paul, because when I read this list off, I'm, I can already tell that there are some creative people whose eyes are glazing over a bit because there wasn't a lot in there about inspiration and creativity and getting juiced and... Right. And (laughs) 
quality of the work and all this stuff. And I would just simply say, I chuckle because I read these things and I go, yep, yep, yep. These are all things that creatives, if they can master them, or if there's an easier way for them to master these things, they're really going to just be a lot happier and they're going to achieve those goals, mm-hmm. I think, faster and, and without nearly as much pain and agony. But let's, let's start with number one. When, when you say learn lessons fast, what does that mean? Yeah. Uh, and you're totally right. And like, honestly, maybe at some point you and I will have another conversation about the artistic nature and artistic side, because there's, there's so much to talk about there. And there, and there's also a lot of great content on that. And this is part of like our product solves a different problem. So we talk about the business side for creatives as much as we can, because that's, that's, that's ultimately the foundation that lets you do your creativity. But yeah, so, so number one, so learning lessons fast. What I mean by that is developing a scientific model for how you approach your business. You can't apply a creative model to it because like how you come up with a good painting or a good piece of art is a completely different process than how you come up with a good business. Hmm. And, and, and while yes, you employ your creative services into your business, you have to strictly be one side of the brain when it comes to thinking about the way the business actually works. And it has to be hypothesis focused. So, so you, you, you think like a scientist and you, you think, okay, I have a hypothesis. If I do X, you know, plus X, then I'll get Y kind of a thing. So if I, if I, if I want to get more clients, for example, I need to run ads on Facebook or something or whatever, like, okay, so let's break it down. What is the, what is this hypothesis for how long, how much money are you going to spend? What kind of ads, who are you going to target? Like write it all through. What what's what's exactly the like how so what exactly are you testing? Is Facebook the channel for me? Is that the question you're trying to answer? Like mm. think of it, you know, as a scientist, then you run the experiment. Sometimes you need to adjust the experiment. Um, you have a you know a dedicated time that you think is you know appropriate to understand whether this question is answered or not. And then and then say say you 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 do Facebook for three months, and you and then you have to walk away with lessons. And when I say fast, like you need to learn lessons fast. Like, wh- what is the lesson? What did you learn? And right. like, if you didn't learn anything, then then you then it was a total failure. Yeah, what I hear you saying there is like three months. You know, give yourself a limit, right? Like, see what you learn in three months, make your observations, and then either go all in or change your strategy. Exactly. That's exactly it. And because what happens is, and this is I see you know so much going on is creatives just get overwhelmed with like, oh, I need to do this and I need to do this and that and all these different social platforms and all these different strategies. And you kind of do all of them, but you never really learn anything about any of them because you don't see it through enough to know if that channel is a good one for you or not. So it's better to kind of clean everything up and do maybe one channel at a time, run a test, run the experiment. Okay. And then figure out, hey, I tried Facebook, but at this stage, it's not for my business. Here's why. And then you shut that door and you don't think about it. And then you have a peace of mind because before you were like, oh, I really should be doing Facebook. And it's, it's, it's not letting you sleep at night because you have a hypothesis in your head, an idea that this is what you should be doing, but you don't know if you should Yeah, I'm, until you run that test. I'm, uh, I'm being reminded of the term I learned from getting things done. I can't remember who the author of that was, but they talk about having clean edges. And I've always, I've always loved that concept of, right? Like Mm -hmm. be clear, be simple 
and like basically double down on what works and all those other things like, oh, maybe I should this, maybe I should that. Like, forget about it. Put it out of your mind. Yeah. We'll get back to this conversation after this quick message. Hey, Joel, I think this is a good moment for us to talk about Rev Community and how important it is to have studio owners join. Mm, You know, that's a good point because I bet there are a lot of people listening right now that are owners that don't realize the power of connecting with their their peers. I know this is this is their competitors, Tim. It sounds weird, but it's a complete game changer, especially over the span of one's career. Don't you find it exciting just how fast community has been growing just word of mouth to have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of business owners that have just been telling each other, please join. It goes to show you that peers are not afraid to talk to each other and have honest conversations. And I'm I absolutely love the discussion forum that takes place almost on a daily basis, churning up new ideas and encouraging one another. Yeah. And it's not conversations with employees. It's not something you're going to talk about with your clients, right? It's not your freelancers. These are other business owners that are struggling with the same exact issues. So for anyone listening that doesn't know about Rev Community, Tim, what should they do? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Go to revthink.com slash community. And all we need is your email address. It is an application process so that we can verify you're a studio owner and not a vendor or a client or a permalance or an employee. We want people of like kind in here processing real world thoughts and real world problems so we can work them out. So yeah, join us. That's the easiest thing to say, right, Joel? Join us right now at revthink.com slash community. Yep. Look forward to seeing you there. And now back to the conversation. All right, so let's let's dive into number two. Number two was divide marketing into specific skill sets. Super curious to know what you what you mean by that. Yeah, so marketing can be seen, and this is what I see another you know kind of mistake that people make is they will see it as this like broad general activity of one way or another of acquiring clients. And in order for marketing to work, the only time it works is when there's specific skill sets in play. And you have to be able to, first of all, learn a meta skill set of learning skills. Um, I think that's, you know, that, that's like a, maybe a broader conversation. But so, so like, okay, so say, you know, at whatever scale, if you're thinking like, I, I need to get more clients, if you're starting out, for example, right, then, well creating you know website and trying to build like a big brand thing and creating content on instagram that's probably not how you start uh it's probably sales you know phone calls uh talking to people directly something like that okay so what's the skill set there well it's conversation Mm -hmm. it's closing it's communication you know so so then maybe you start you get some clients in and you have you know some some momentum building then it's like well um you know, I don't have anything online. So the next skill set is how do I communicate myself online, what I'm doing. So, you know, creating an Instagram or, you know, whatever platform you use. And then also a website that is clear, that communicates who you are and your value proposition and the work you've done. Like that's a skill set. Then, you know, from there, if you're, if you, if you want to start pursuing some kind of an ad model, of running ads to acquire clients, um, those can be broken down into very specific skill sets, like ad creative, 
that's a skill set. Um, each platform requires its own skill set um, because they work completely differently. Especially, for example, if you want to do SEO, that's a, that's a completely different game. And so you just have to you have to ask yourself, what's the next skill I need to acquire to achieve my goals? And when you're always asking that question and you're refining the skill to something very specific, then you put yourself in control. Otherwise, you get overwhelmed really fast. And, and you can't master every channel. Well, this is leading me to an interesting thought I'm having. And this is a new thought, so thank you. <laughs> that, yeah. uh, that I've observed that in, in the creative industry that there's what I call this creative firm sales cycle, where we're always moving people from unaware to aware to interest to intent mm -hmm. and then ultimately mm -hmm. to award, right? Like you've got the project. Mm -hmm. And there's definitely different skill sets for those marketing activities and then those sales activities, right? But you made an interesting point a second mm -hmm. ago because when you talked about like, if you don't have sales, you're gonna go right to the end of that cycle and be like, who can I meet in person and who can I close? And it made me realize, mm -hmm. you know, maybe there's an argument to be made that you would start there, like learn the skill sets of closing first and then move backwards and learn like how to present, then learn how to have your online mm -hmm. presence and portfolio and your brand, you know, personal brand, what have you. But then you go back a step further and now you're learning how to generate leads and uh, publish content. And you go back a step further and it's like, wow, how do I even just do the most raw mass scale stuff like SEO and things like that? I, I don't know if that leads to a, yes. a similar yes. thought. It's kind of interesting to think of there's an order to it that once you divide those skill sets out, you might say, learn this one first and learn this one last. Well, think about if you're building a funnel, like a physical funnel, you don't start at the rim at the top. <laughs> it's not right. going to be very helpful. You start at the bottom, at the end of the funnel, and you work backwards to make it bigger. Uh, right. And so absolutely. Because if you start there and you don't know how to close, well, what are you going to do with all that? You know, you don't even know where, how to nurture traffic, how to nurture leads, anything. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a very keen observation. You start at the bottom of the funnel in terms of skill sets. I, well, I love that we're um, speaking the same language here because I'm even recognizing that in these, this framework that we call in Rev Thinking, we call the seven ingredients, which are all the various areas of business that you have to master in order to be viable over the long term, that marketing is actually one of the last ingredients that people tend to master because it's that very, very top of the funnel thing that's really, really hard. Mm -hmm. And in a way, when you're, you're a startup and you're small, it's not really that necessary. You know, you need to be able to close. You need to be able to meet somebody in person, charm them, wow them, shake hands and have a deal. Because if you can't do that, none of that other stuff matters, right? Exactly, exactly. That's absolutely the first skill. No, you're totally right. You're totally right. That is the, the order of priority. Um, and there's, there's a lot of things, you know, when it comes to marketing. Obviously, we could talk about skill sets for a long time. Maybe I'll just mention a few that I think are that I see people confusing and making mistakes on uh, when it comes to marketing and, and, and content specifically. Um, I think a lot of people confuse being an influencer with content marketing um, where they will see people on social platforms who will amass large audiences 
by creating content and they'll think, okay, this is a, this is the great way to get clients, but that's not always true. The, um, and, and it's very easy to confuse the two because to get a large audience most likely means, first of all, that most of them won't be relevant to what the service you offer. Uh, and second of all, to compete with other content creators, you probably have to go full-time just in content creation. So now you're not able to offer the kind of service that you need to offer. Because totally. everybody else who's competing, creating content, they're doing it full-time. And then the business model shifts. Now, when you have an audience, you can sell sponsorships and whatever. So now you're selling a completely different product and you're having to entertain an audience and and which may or not may not even result in any leads for your actual business because because maybe you know they're overseas or geographically doesn't make sense or something else doesn't line up because you know it's it's very tricky a much easier way to do things is create content that showcases you as an expert for your immediate network and then you basically hack referral marketing where you have friends and people in your network who haven't hired you but they know somebody who needs your service and because they know you as an expert now, they will recommend you, even though they haven't hired you. Thank you. And so the kind of content you create really showcases yourself as an expert in the field. So take the work that you're already doing and, and create content around why, why you're good at it. And that you know maybe educates and entertains as it does it. And then you'll hack referral marketing. Yeah, and referrals are good grief. One of the most untapped sources of new business that I see creatives missing out on. Well, like in the interest of time, I'm going to mm -hmm. go to number three. So here we go. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. this one's a really juicy one. Niche until it hurts. Lay it on me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't remember who I heard say that. Um, this is not my formulation, but I think it's so true because initially it feels incredibly counterintuitive to niche. Um, because it, because you know the, your intuition tells you I'm I'm narrowing down my market and why would I want to do that? Um, now I, I you know all these other people won't hire me if I say that I do this for that and in, in this like specific niche. But the fact is, if you want to raise your prices and be hired as a as an expert, you have to brand yourself as an expert, and you can't be an expert in everything. Everybody knows that, so. Um, if you absolutely have to offer different types of niche kind of services, I would recommend like having a different branding, separate the brands or something. Sure. You know, um, but so that when you, when you lead into a market and to clients with like, Hey, I can do this for your business because this is what I do. And this is why I'm going to charge more because this is what I'm good at. And here's what I've done before to other clients. And, and that's really the key to raising rates is to niche until it hurts. I'm, I'm chuckling because I'm thinking of creatives that I've seen um, follow that smart strategy you just mentioned, right? Like, oh, I, I do design and I do photography. And the smart person would say, well, I'm gonna have a brand for my design work. I'm gonna have a brand for my photography. What usually happens is one of those takes off because they niche down, they're suddenly viewed as the expert. Mm -hmm. People are like, wow, you got to work with her. She's the best. And they, of course, are able to raise mm -hmm. their prices. And one of those two expertises goes away <laughs> because they're mm -hmm. like, well, this is the one that I really enjoy. This is the one I'm really expert at. And hey, I'm making a lot of money. So why would I, why would I do both of these things? 
exactly yeah it becomes a distraction and yeah i mean like maybe initially you're testing out the market to see where you'll land and you're offering everything but if you're offering many different services there's no way you're going to charge a lot of money for them it's just uh generally speaking that's not how it works it, it it's a sign of somebody starting you haven't figured out what you're doing yet basically <laughs> that's why you're offering everything you well, know it's isn't it generally the, um, speaking, it, and then like maybe there's like huge huge agencies that then build tons of brand Right, and when they have all this brand equity and people know, okay, they have all these departments and whatever, whatever, then they're hiring other big brands, and it, that's a completely other, you know, playing field. But when we're talking of like small teams, like micro businesses, these are generally the rules. Well, I can say for sure that those big agencies they didn't get there by offering everything right under the sword, uh, under the sun, the smorgasbord. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm even chuckling when you think mm -hmm. about when you walk into the restaurant. And they have the menu that's just like a wall, and they're like, "Here are the Mexican things, and the the Italian things we offer, and then the Indian and the whatever, mm -hmm, the French mm -hmm. and the whatever." Like, you're not going to see high prices. That is not going to be a Michelin star restaurant mm -hmm. ever. And yeah. it's yeah, funny excellent how example. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, people just can't yeah. quite get it through their heads. It's a bodega, how... <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> But it's like seafood I, I, next to like, yeah, hamburgers and spaghetti and tacos. And, but I do like that idea. If you you talked yeah. about of even separating the brands, because at least you then have some way of measuring, like what is the one that's mm -hmm. really resonating. And of course, I generally find, and maybe this is what you've observed, that whatever it is, whatever it is, the person is most passionate about, whatever is their genius is where they're going to typically thrive. And it's just fear that's making them hang on to that moneymaker that they're just terrified to let go of. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so now we get to number four. Solve your go-to-market acquisition channel. Okay, I think I know what you mean there, but what is that? <laughs> In the startup world, the way somebody builds a company typically is they'll raise money, They'll start building some kind of, you know, technology product. Um, the founders will have a hypothesis of how the market, that the market needs it. They'll do, you know, customer surveys, user surveys, whatever. They might even get some, you know, people signed up in advance on just like the vision of what they're trying to build. And then as soon as the product is more or less ready for the market, they put it out there. <clears throat> and when they put it out there, almost every time they're disappointed where people don't care as much as they thought they would. And then you have to figure out what is this channel that is gonna be your first acquisition channel that's gonna work for you. And so typically founders will just start experimenting and they'll do maybe some ads and they'll do local stuff, on-site stuff, they'll do you know, different like hacks of, I don't know, maybe they'll like email people directly, maybe they'll whatever, they'll just try and try and try and try different channels. And typically when investors will look at early stage, like seed stage opportunities, until a startup has figured out their acquisition channel, it's insanely risky to invest into them because most of them, this is where they die. They never quite find that channel. And so when it comes to building a service-based business, I think something is true. Uh, some parallel is true to that, where you start off, you figure out your skill set. You kind of, if you're a photographer, you get your camera, your equipment, you take some courses. You're like, okay, I can, I can shoot. Like this is, this is not bad work. Or maybe you're a designer and you had some clients, but you don't have a channel that you know works for you yet. 
and you're like, I can, I can repeatedly do this and it's predictable and I know I'll get clients. And well, so I'm, you're just dabbling everywhere. So tell me, would this be an acquisition channel? Cause I'm thinking back and this is even before the internet was invented. But when I started my creative studio, my acquisition channel was I'm going to go to conferences. I am going to go to awards shows and then ultimately, I ended up moving my business inside a post-production facility because I knew there were tons of people coming and going that would love to find out more about this animation studio that was inside that facility. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it worked. But would you call that an acquisition channel or channels? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because maybe you figured out that the geographical location was actually going to give you the kind of exposure to the right client and then there you could convert them better than anybody you know and that and that location actually becomes you know your your channel absolutely because it could be anything like um <clears throat> i was speaking with a photographer who you know she figured out that she could go into real estate agencies and like firms and identify who is like the most influential person there and offer them a free headshot and 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 that she would do such a good job and they would post it on the wall and everybody in the entire agency would want one of course and, and this was repeatable she could go into agency after agency and it worked and then pretty soon you know she was quickly making just a ridiculous amount of money because then she created demand and there was like a style that everybody was recognizing that was her work and she just owned this you know professional headshot space within a short period of time um, even wow. though she didn't set out to do headshots initially, she wanted to do just like general portraiture, but she found that this is what worked for her. To me, it's, it's endearing how simple, right? Because when I hear acquisition channel, I start thinking of things like, I don't know, I'm going to source my, right, like my elements or my talent or something from a certain place. And then I'm going to connect it to this and I'm going to use, I don't know transportation and logistics or i'm going to use channels like i think of facebook or whatever like and then you're you're boiling it down and saying you know what sometimes it's just walking into the right type of business and offering the right solution that jives with your expertise mm -hmm. and and you just you find that magic formula and it starts to it starts to click yeah absolutely well and because i put there that's the first most important problem to solve that's like especially when you're starting off you can't have a business until you found that and typically it's not going to be something complex. It probably won't be advertising. It, that's scaling. You know, that requires more brand. It requires more cash to experiment with. You probably don't have that yet. And, and you have to think about, you know, where you are at at the moment. Which actually leads to the next point. Yeah. Uh, number, number five uh, is adjust strategies based on scale. Okay, yeah, go. Tie, tie it in. Yeah. Well, okay, so when I think of, like, scale, uh, there's different stages and at stage one, you're just thinking about cash. Stage two, stability. Stage three is efficiency. Stage four is scale. And then stage five is legacy. That's kind of how, how I think about it. So like when, when you're just starting, you need cash. Without cash, you're gonna get, you're gonna be worried all the time. You're just, you, you're gonna get frustrated. You might burn out, you might even quit, right? So how do you get it? Well, you, you just go do sales, you know? That's the easiest, most direct, bottom of funnel. Find people, close them. Um, Rebranding your website's probably not the best strategy, right there. You know. Um, Thank you. <laughs> even even probably running ads isn't. You know, like you just you got to get some cash flow going. Figure out how to close. 
then then you're work and then the next is stability okay you, not just a few projects now you you want to make sure that you get a regular flow and this is where you're solving your initial acquisition channel it's gonna it's it's it has to create stability so um you know and this isn't don't don't be doing you know content like marketing yet you're not ready for that yet that's going to consume a lot of time you just have to set up certain automations certain processes in place because at this point you, you you start needing to think about your tech stack you need tools you right you, how are you signing contracts how are you doing you know invoicing how are you managing your leads that are coming in how, how are you following up how are you getting google reviews like there's just there's a system that you start kind of setting up but not yet right but for now it's still like you're still thinking mostly about the the acquisition channel you know how are you getting these clients and then the things will kind of still maybe not be as efficient initially and then you get to the third stage now this is all efficiency and this is where you know you have to work out the system the business the business system if you don't then everything will be messy your clients won't be happy you'll miss things you'll miss deadlines things will fall through the cracks you won't offer a professional service and this is where you know what we do at bloom becomes insanely important Ideally, you start with a product like Bloom from the beginning, then you don't have to, you know, go through the learning pain of having like scale and adopting a CRM like Bloom. But, you know, what, what we do is we bring everything together and it's streamlined. Every client touch point is brought together. And so you need something, a product like that, that gives you an operation um, that works that, you know, you don't want to have to be hiring, you know, an assistant when you're only making, you know, barely enough money to cover your own goals and because you you need to be putting money into marketing and into growth and so but but at this stage like working on a mission statement doesn't make sense it's too early you're just you're just creating efficiency right 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 um, and, and then and then you start thinking about scale and this is where if you start as a freelancer you're going into an agency this is where you're hiring employees you know and at this point you probably shouldn't be replying to every email you're thinking bigger picture you're hiring you're thinking of systems, you know, you're thinking of managing people. And then, and then once you have, you know, a good business operating and lots of money coming in, hopefully then you start thinking about other things than just money of how you're leaving a legacy, what the mission is, how you're impacting the world, et cetera. Well, I, I love what you've outlined because what I, what I hear you saying, and it's definitely been my observation as well, that often the creative starts a business because they're so good at this creative work and because they're probably really good with meeting people and closing, they start to get really busy. And then mm -hmm. like the, the madness starts to ensue. They, they, they're trying to scale. They're trying to get all the work done. They're trying to, they're starting to wear all these other hats that they didn't see coming. And then they sort of wake up one day and say, mm -hmm. damn, my gift and my talent was almost a curse because now I'm running a business and I don't even know what it means to run a business. Like I hear Paul talk about operations and scale and process and efficiency. And right. I'm like, I don't, I don't even know where to begin. So I think it's a, a common pattern that a lot of those headaches and bumping your head against the, that, that ceiling of complexity uh, can be, can be better managed, I guess it can be, um, there's a lot, there are resources and, and helps out there, you know, people like you, people like me that are like, <laughs> please, there is a better way. Yeah, yeah. I'm always, at some point, I, I will do this. I want to create a rubric. Mm. Uh, it'll be like a guideline, but like, 
and it, it'll basically be like if you're making from this much money to this much money don't think about these things only think about these things and where it'll take each stage and break down the activities that are relevant for you at that stage and i think that's just something that it just doesn't come intuitively because a lot of people start off and they're like oh i need to do this and this and they're their mind is scattered everywhere where the, the scale just needs to dictate the strategy. And, and, and that only comes through experience typically. So remind me and I'll share our seasons of the creative firm concept with you. And we'll see if there's some alignment there. Maybe it's, maybe it's, uh, could mm. be a, a similar foundation for a rubric that we could work on together. It could be fun. Actually, so, that would be very interesting. I would love to see what you have. So certainly after this, please. You got it. You got it. Okay. Well, I'm going to get to number seven. Number seven, I see productize your service. And I'm kind of low key freaking out as a creative person, because when I hear that, I immediately think, Paul, you're trying to take all the magic out of what I do and how unique it is. And, you know, make me into someone who manufactures widgets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could see that. Um, see, cause, and I'm sure you talk a lot about this as well. Um, in, in essence, what this is, is instead of selling your services as something that is uh, in each project uniquely packaged, at some point, you should start seeing patterns of like, hey, I'm being hired, say, say people are hiring you to do like video and social media work. And then you're like, well, generally a brand of this size need this size, the size I reach needs approximately this kind of work done on a monthly basis to achieve their goals then why not package that into a package that then you have on a retainer instead of instead of trying to sell them you know on your service over and over again and and the whole goal of scaling is to get as many retainers as you can and this could be i mean usually this is with commercial clients but it could also be with you know private clients as well but you, what you want to see is how can you how can you turn it into a monthly retainer thing as fast as possible, because then you've just liberated yourself from having to sell again and again, and you've created some kind of foundation for stability and expectation of income. So maybe it means you drop your rates a little bit, you know, in order to incentivize them, uh, or however you know. But but you want to be able to package it and and sell it in in something that is like a a cohesive whole, you know, like, hey, I'm going to come in to your, your company, you have this goal, you want to get better brand awareness or reach on your social media, here's I'm an expert in that. Here's what I've done for other clients. Here's what my package looks like. Here's how much it'll cost you per month. And you already know the kind of companies you're reaching. So maybe you can even put your prices up front. So it's like totally transparent. Maybe not maybe, you know, you can experiment with that. But but the point is that as soon as you start to productize, the sooner you start to scale. If I was to take the term productize your service and replace the word service with process, does that still work in your mind? Because I think a lot of creative people might realize, oh, right. There is like this initial inquiry and discovery, and then there's this development phase, and then there's this production, and then, right, and then there's delivery and distribution, whatever. Oh, right. That process can be productized. Yeah, but the service is part of the whole process, you know, um, the, the, the product that you deliver, you know, it could, it could either be seen as like 
you know, something that's like a one-off or something that's a package. And so that, that's all, that's all that's really, I'm saying there is, you know, if this is, if, if your client is like, oh, we're hiring this artist to do this mural or something, you know, that's one thing. Um, and that's like a, maybe a more artistic, you know, uh, kind of, uh, situation, but th those, those are much rarer than needs that can be productized. So, so you want to have both in your business. You want to have things that you offer like on retainers. And then of course, maybe something that's like way more creative that then they're going to have to discuss with you and it's going to be a one-off. Um, but, but if, if you're only selling one-offs, then uh, the amount of time you spend in acquiring new clients is just the hardest part. So you, as soon as you hire, somebody hires you for any project, always be thinking, can I turn it into a retainer? You know, and then, and then if you can, then, then now, now you have something that you can scale. So that's all really I'm saying by that is because when I think retainer, I think product. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and, and that's something that's, that's scalable. So. Um, doesn't at all have need to have an impact on you know how artistic it is. you still have to be artistic you're offering an, an artistic service um, all it is is your client it, it's this is the patronage model you're basically telling your client hey commit to me for anyone that's thinking oh that sounds very limiting to the creativity I would say it's no more limiting than say painting on a canvas that's rectangular and saying well this rectangle shape is very limiting it's like yeah but you can create anything within that framework, right? So productizing your service mm -hmm. is a framework. Mm -hmm. You get to be as creative as you want inside that productization. Is that the proper use of that word? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, same thing with like when Mozart was being hired, you know, the, the, the princes would say, hey, by my birthday, I need, you know, 30 minutes of entertainment, go, you know? And, and they would just have regular like expectations of the, the, the product, you know, which was his music. Um, and so, you know, Mozart didn't just get to like write as long as he wanted to. He had deadlines. He had a client that he needed to serve. You know, right. that's just how it works. That's the, that's just the nature of the reality. Right. Um, he had, yes. He had like a... some artists get, I was just going to say some artists like get to be in a place at some point. And this is maybe like this glorious ideal where they only paint when they feel like it. Cause they have so much money coming in from other income sources. Sure build that up get those income sources going and then be that artist. But you know, you have to get there somehow. Yeah. I'm thinking of, he had a, he had a, a limitation called a 30 minute performance, right. Or recital or something like that. And we, I'm thinking our limitation is we have a 30 second commercial. There's still just enormous yeah. latitude and creativity that happens within that format. Yeah. Okay. So number yep. eight was, and you touched on this earlier, the consider having a co-founder and to me i'm guessing this is like maybe a classic division of labor concept that you know if you're going to have um a partner be complementary in some way be a yin to that person's yang mm -hmm. so that you can divide and conquer those just all that craziness and all those wearing of all those hats yeah the, the only things that that i would say that might be somewhat new for maybe your audience in terms of like startup lessons is when you're building like a tech startup, how you structure the co-founder ownership becomes important. And this is, because the last thing you wanna do is end up, you know, in a 50-50 situation where your partner is only doing 10% of the work. And that happens yeah. all too often, you know? And so you want to somehow gauge contribution. 
and it takes time to build that reputation at times to build to, to understand who's actually offering how much value so there can be a vesting schedule you know that you have of like hey you know we're going to build like you, you set out you know with a vision this is going to be the kind of agency this is what it's going to look like you know i'm the original founder for example this is this is my vision i'm bringing you in uh, i see you can offer tons of value um i would like to offer you you know up to 30% of ownership for owning these, you know, responsibilities, these set of responsibilities. And the ownership is going to vest in four years, 25% every year. So they don't just get to like on day one, own 30%. They have to right. work for a year before they acquire 25% of the 30%, right. you know? And then every year that the, 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 the expectations are met, you know, the ownership is vested. And so, you know, that's one way to structure it, but there's, you know, there's ways to kind of hedge your bets, so to speak, uh, and bring in somebody that would offer complementary skills and structure deals uh, with, with other co-founders. And I guess by, I'm, I'm gonna, I've inferred from what you just said there that you don't want to have a co-founder that is your twin, right? You're looking for someone who brings what you don't have and vice versa. Absolutely. What's the point then? <laughs> well, it's yeah. funny, right? It totally defeat the purpose. Have you seen this common pattern though, where, you know, I'll see two guys that are creatives or two ladies that are creatives and they're friends and they're like, yeah, we should go start our own agency. And then, you know, I meet them a year or two later and I'm like, you know, the two of you, <laughs> you do the same exact things right you have the same talents the same genius and that's okay we can work with it but gosh if one of you was sales and the other one was creative we'd be a lot further down the road here <laughs> yeah 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 absolutely and the challenge is obviously if you bring in somebody who is not a creative like you they won't understand you and that's the fear especially for creative people we take things very personally especially when it comes to the work we create you know, it's an extension of ourselves. And so there's this fear, you know, we want to get along and obviously in a business minded person will just think numbers. And, but that's the point, you know, you, if you want to create a foundation, you have to be able to listen to each other and you have to be able to pull and give and take and at times, you know, disagree and figure out, you know, what's good for the business. And, um, and, and that's just, that's just the reality of it. I, otherwise, do it yourself. Life will be easier anyway then, you know, um, or, or start, get as far as you can. And then once you, you know, see your limitations, look for somebody who has strengths in those areas. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for going through those eight principles. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of tempted to steer us towards a conclusion, but I want to ask you this, this question. It's a bit of a moonshot type of a question. So knowing what you know now and all that you've learned with working with now with so many hundreds and hundreds or thousands of creatives, do you have a, like a dream? Like what's your, what's the, the brass ring that you're reaching for when you think about the impact that you're going to have on the creative industry or maybe on the larger world, if what you're doing at bloom plays out the way you hope? Oh, thank you for asking. Um, I am also creative and I have a heart for creatives and because I feel the pain of, of, of this, 
there, there's this need to contribute to the world um, of, of a creative type of an outlet that's also related to your pure self-expression and and it's very intimate and this is your gift to the world you know is the artistry that you bring you, we we artists bring color to the world and the world would be very black and white and boring and like the world frankly needs us but the world we live in doesn't really understand us and and it's and it's not easy to function in it and to create a foundation and to have a lifestyle that we want to have and especially in a very like capitalistic world you know that that we live in so my vision and mission and goal and everything we're doing with bloom is to empower creatives uh, to give them essentially uh, all this all, all the technological tools that they need in order to simplify their operation to let them move towards scale as fast as possible where you know think of for example like in this how much technology helps like if you you know had a property you wanted to rent out and an airbnb didn't exist how much work it would take to find clients wow. you know mm -hmm. and to and to sell your service of your property before you're making money off of it what are you going to run ads on it tell your friends about it. it's going to be vacant half the time and you still have to pay the cleaning person you know whatever and it's like it's just it's going to be totally inefficient. You put it on Airbnb and now all of a sudden you have a business overnight and money coming in. So that's what we want to do with Bloom. We want to we want to take care of the business stuff. We want to automate it. We want to create systems. We want to understand how it works and make it smooth and efficient and then let creative do creative work. Creative do creative work. And, and, and But at the same time, not create this marketplace where we own them, like, you know, like where we centralize everything. We want them to be free and independent and completely in control. So, um, so it's this fine balance where we always think about how much do we centralize and how much we don't. And we want to, you know, this, everything to be, you know, their business. Um, but we want to give them the tools to make it, to make it seamless, to make it fluid and smooth. Well, I love what you said about the world would be very black and white, right? That, that, that the artists and creatives bring the color and that's why the world needs us. And I was even thinking of this lyric from the song audition in la la land do you know this where it it, it reads a I bit of madness la la is key to give us new colors to see who knows where it will lead us and that's why they need us <laughs> oh spot on watch that movie several times that's <laughs> <laughs> good stuff well, Paul, I appreciate, um, you know, what you do and, and what Bloom does, um, especially for all the creatives out there that need these tools and these resources to help them thrive so they can bring those gifts into the world. So uh, hats off to you and your team. Um, if people want to connect with you, what's the best way to connect with you? How do they find Bloom? It's bloom.io. Um, we do have a free trial. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll do a, a special promotion deal with with your podcast. So uh, I'll let you communicate that to your audience, however you wish. Um, and then, Great. you know, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Instagram. Um, so find me anywhere. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks again, Paul. Really good to have you on the show. Thank you so much. It's been a privilege. <laughs>